It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios. Welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. You and you still like me or you or you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You're all right. <laughs> I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth in America wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up. Speak up. Say something. Do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. This, Justin, you are looking at obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. Yeah, now remember, oh my God. That looks like a second plane. Terrible. I didn't see a plane go in. That... That just exploded. I just saw another plane coming in from the side. You did. I just, that was out of, up yeah, so that's view. the second explosion. You could see the plane come in just from the right-hand side of the screen. So this looks like it is some sort of a concerted effort to attack the World Trade Center. Did you see what happened? What happened? Well, I was in the train, and there was a huge explosion sound. Everyone came out. A large section of the building is blown out. They are now saying that a plane incredibly has crashed into the Pentagon. Another aircraft unbelievably has crashed into the Pentagon. This is a preliminary wire. We seek to confirm this, but this word just into us from our newsroom that perhaps another aircraft went in there. ago uh, tomorrow on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. That was the date uh, that really changed this country tremendously. I I sort of feel in a way it was a warning shot by God himself uh, to give us a chance to get a glimpse of what it would be like if judgment came and uh, maybe a test to see how we responded to that. So part of what I want to talk about today is not only remembering that day, because heaven knows So many of you are young, you don't remember, you were younger, or you just can't even recall. I think that's why I wanted to play that clip. I wanted you to experience it again, because it was a day that changed all of our lives. Everyone remembers where they were on that day, uh, and everyone looks to that point 
Uh, but maybe perhaps we have not really fully appreciated how it did change us. And so I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, 2,977 people uh, were killed on that day. Uh, There was one plane, two planes that hit the Twin Towers in New York City, and that's where the, the visual images we're most familiar with as we saw people drop out of the windows and fall to their death, and we saw the trauma of the people in New York City as the Twin Towers fell and all the debris and soot. It was just horrific. Uh, and so, and the you know, the transportation wasn't working. People had to walk home for hours. Same thing in D.C., by the way. And, of course, a plane went uh, down in D.C. and hit the Pentagon, did terrible destruction. And uh, also Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Uh, the, we think these planes were headed for perhaps the White House, and other areas, and they just missed. Their target that they did hit was the Pentagon and, of course, the Twin Towers because they wanted to bring down the economic power of the United States. My, how things have developed in this last 20 years. Uh, My own story, and many of you have heard this, so just suffer my retelling a bit because I was out of the country on 9-11. I had gone to China uh, to meet with uh, people in the underground church uh, to take, we should do um, news stories uh, out of China. And I was part of a group that went to do that. There were 12 of us who were talk show hosts from major cities around the country. And six of us peeled off. Uh, unbeknownst to us, they took us into, we went into North Korea. We didn't expect that. Uh, we, by some sort of special arrangement, and at that time, no one was going into North Korea, trust me. Uh, we got into North Korea, and we had an incredible, like as an eye-opening, tour of that failed communist state. Of course, they put their best foot forward, but it was frightening to see the way they had programmed their people to sense the fear and the tension. I think I have reminded uh, you. We saw these children. They do these, you know, these real precise dances, and they're just perfect. But um, I, we were going to pose with those kids, and I went up and put my hand standing behind one of the little girls, and she just jumped and tensed up uh, because they were being told that Americans were the reasons that they were starving. They were starving then, Uh, not the dancers and uh, the show people, but the regular North Koreans were starving. Christians were suffering, and it was, we met in clandestine places. We met with people who had escaped in northern Manchuria uh, and who were living in caves, Uh, met with apartments of uh, Chinese in northern Manchuria who were hiding people. And so uh, that's what we were doing. And uh, when we came back across the border on September the 12th, not September the 11th, we knew nothing. We came back across, it was like uh, the wall of East Berlin with guns pointed at us walking across this bridge to enter into what, freedom? (laughs) The freedom? So... What an odd way to uh, describe China. But uh, it was free compared to North Korea. We walked across the bridge, came back into northern Manchuria, uh, went to dinner, and the restaurant owner said to an interpreter, "Do you all are Americans. Do you know what's happened? And um, we said, we don't want what you're talking about. And so he told us that three planes had gone down, and he started to explain it. And I honestly thought he was crazy. I thought, you, this is just crazy talk. And so one of our talk show host who was from New York City, had a satellite phone. He called his wife, and she confirmed everything. Well, needless to say, we could not eat. We packed up our food and quickly went with our hosts, who were Americans uh, of Korean descent. 
And they had left their very successful business in California and gone to North Korea uh, to live in northern Manchuria to help at great risk to them and great risk to the northern Manchurian Christians who were helping. Uh, they had gone there to help to feed the people rice when they'd swim across the Tumon River trying to escape. So this couple, who were so dear and so sacrificial in their love of Jesus and their willingness to help their own people, uh, they took us in the, the dead of night up to their apartment. I remember all of us going up to the very top, no elevator, and turning on television and watching the unfiltered footage. And it was not in English, but we watched, uh, they translated for us, and we watched the bodies drop, and it was just the most shocking. I, I was, I remember on the floor rocking on my knees, just rocking, because my two children were back in the States. I was in transition. I was getting ready to move to Washington, D.C. to be the president of Concerned Women for America. And I wondered, you know, is this the beginning of World War III? Is this war? And will we be able to get back home, and will I ever see my children again? So uh, we, were, we ended up being stranded in uh, uh, Beijing for about 10 days. And uh, I, during those days, I would stay up at night and watch CNN. All of, uh, I'm not sure everyone did, but I certainly did, uh, to watch what was happening in the U.S., and I saw some things that were just shocking to me. I saw on CNN a pastor on the set with a CNN anchor, and I saw the CNN anchor ask the pastor if he would pray on CNN. I've been on CNN many, many times. Um, that was not like CNN to do that. We all know that. I knew something had changed. My country had changed. And so I uh, finally got home and learned a lot of the things that you all know because you were there and you saw a lot of the details. There's so much more to say about that, but that's where I was. And of course, when I got back to D- when I got to D.C., arrived the first time, the Pentagon was still basically smoldering. The plane was still there. And um, that's how I began my, my service as the president of CWA. Well, all of us have a story, as I said before, and one person who has an incredible story is Deborah Burlingame. Her her brother, Captain Charles Chick Burlingame, was the pilot of American Flight 77, which is the one that landed in the Pentagon. And uh, Deborah has been an outspoken critic and a person concerned about what's happened since that time. She's very articulate, very impassioned. I asked her to join me this morning, but she said it's too painful for her to do this now. So she has written this for her friends, and I want to read it to you, okay? I've met, I'm not a personal friend of Deborah. I know her, so I don't want to mislead, but um, this is her telling of it. She says, Dear friends, I have spent the last 20 years remembering my brother and the 2,977 people who were brutally murdered in an act of war carried out by Sunni extremist jihadist terrorists who seek to impose their cruel form of Sharia law on the entire world. This was a wake-up call for most Americans, and some 5 million of them answered that call. They left their jobs, they interrupted their college studies, and they said goodbye to their families to defend and protect their country under the colors of their flag. They went to war. Some of those who served in combat were only children on 9-11, and some were the children of those brave and valiant fighters and cops who died in the Twin Towers. These people have been my inspiration. They and their families restored my hope and affirmed my belief in the goodness of my fellow human beings. I will never forget them, because they never forgot 9-11 and my brother, his passengers and crew, all those who died that terrible day. This year, this Saturday, as I stand at the Pentagon just a few yards away from where America, American 77 struck the building, 
I will be remembering the brave hearts of Operation Enduring Freedom, Operation Iraqi Freedom, and all the other post-9-11 military operations where they were sent not to engage in a forever war, but to secure forever peace. That's the phrase of a British MP, NATO ally, combat vet of Afghanistan, used so effectively in a speech to his peers. This anniversary, another American president will address the nation, but it will be a bitter day because this is a president who has betrayed his troops and his country. For the first time in 20 years, I believe we are in great danger, greater danger, than we were before 9-11. The evil men who harbored Osama bin Laden and gave safe passage to terrorists to train for their murderous attacks have now been installed in the ruling government leadership for this new Taliban. The list of cabinet ministers is a who's who of global terrorists. And then she goes to list all of them, and I won't go through that list, but she talks about um, one of them is the founder of the Taliban. Four of five, of course, the Taliban senior leaders were released from Gitmo and traded for the army deserter Bo Bergdahl. We have lost so much since this defeat was engineered from the White House and approved at the highest levels of the Defense Department. In view of all of those devastating events, this Saturday will mark for me the first day in the next fight to restore our country's honor and teach our children and grandchildren that liberty and justice aren't something inherited. They don't exist in our DNA. They must be taught, practiced, cherished, affirmatively chosen, and defended. We have to win this. We have no other choice. I take inspiration from the vets who are engineering and leading the rescue of U.S. citizens, Afghan war partners, and NATO allied personnel, who the commander-in-chief shamelessly deserted in a country now ruled by global terrorists. These Americans who have rejected dishonor and have rushed in at great risk to themselves have delivered me from despair. For freedom, Deborah Berlingay. And uh, I would just say to those of you listening, we're going to be talking about a lot of things today. I hope that this weekend, during the 20th anniversary, you will have your children watch the remembrances that no doubt will be replayed on television just so that they understand and have perspective. We have coddled our children too much, I think. They need to know the reality because we are not done with this war. In many ways, you know we're beginning to embrace it in a brand new way, a very dreadful way. So uh, stay tuned as we talk more. Frank Gaffney's going to join me next. I met Frank in conjunction, uh, in conjunction with 9-11, and so we're going to tell that story. Uh, stay tuned. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. But our responsibility to history is already clear. To answer these attacks and rid the world of evil. War has been waged against us by stealth and deceit and murder. This nation is peaceful, but fierce when stirred to anger. Our unity is a kinship of grief and a steadfast resolve to prevail against our enemies. And this unity against terror is now extending across the world. God bless America. That was the President of the United States speaking at a service in the National Cathedral that took place, I think, three days after the attack, which was on a Tuesday morning. 
And uh, just a personal, I was sitting in that hotel room in Beijing watching CNN and watching that a service. Uh, Billy Graham spoke. It was it was just a surreal. It was surreal, and it was very comforting, of course, to hear the president speak and then Billy Graham give his uh, her, his perspective on who God was and how God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. So that, that was kind of takes us back to those moments. Uh, I met my next guest, who's a very good friend, very familiar to all of you, Frank Gaffney, uh, in, conjun- uh, in conjunction with the events of 9-11. I think I may have interviewed Frank before that, but I didn't really know him. He came to my office at CWA, where I had, was a brand new president of the organization, to brief me on what he had experienced on 9-11. So, uh, Frank, thanks for joining me this morning. And we should revisit, because your story is incredible. And I'm sure probably most, I would say almost no one uh, listening to us this morning knows that story. Where were you on 9-11? Sandy, I had a remarkable ringside seat on what I consider to be uh, one of the most important parts of the battlefront into which we were suddenly thrust uh, on 9-11. I was uh, driving into town and got a call from one of my colleagues uh, saying, are you watching television? And I wasn't at the moment, of course. Uh, and he said, a plane has just crashed into the World Trade Center. And we agreed that on a crystal clear day, it was unlikely that was an accident. But by the time our conversation finished, the second plane had come in and all doubts were dispelled. By the time I got um, to town, uh, I was driving across the Whitehurst Freeway. You're familiar with that elevated highway, and I could see from that vantage point in the distance, the Pentagon was on fire. I got to my office and was profoundly uncertain about what to do and couldn't really figure out whether my little team of you know, national security and counterterrorism professionals would be best, you know, uh, kept at their duty stations in our offices, or which were four blocks as a 767 flies from the White House. And alternatively, whether we'd be better off just taking our chances on the streets, and heavens knows what kind of environment that would be. As I was mulling this, uh, Sandy, and what I can only describe as a providential thing, I did something I had don't think I had ever done before, and I never did since. Uh, and that was stand in the open doorway of my office suite. And as I did, the elevators down at the other end of the hall, opposite the entrance to this offices of the fellow from whom I was renting the space for the Center for Security Policy at that time, uh, by the name of Grover Norquist, who was president and is president of Americans for Tax Reform. Um, the elevators opened their doors and out came 15, 20, something like that, uh, people, uh, many of whom were dressed in sort of um, Muslim related attire or Middle Eastern garb. And they walked, you know, three or four feet away from me and turned into the conference room that I shared with Grover at the time. And it was such a stunning thing. And then even more stunning was at the back end of it came Grover Norquist and another fellow who at the time was working as a full-time volunteer in the Office of Public Liaison of the White House. 
colleague of Grover's by the name of Suhail Khan. And I went into my office and told one of my colleagues there that uh, I'd just seen this. And he, unbeknownst to me, had the presence of mind to get up on his desk and lift up the full ceiling of the uh, that went over the drywall that separated his office from the conference room. And he was able to listen a bit to the conversation. And he subsequently told me that uh, what he heard was just a part of it, but it was a very um, apparently fractious conversation about the uh, fact that some people were reluctant to sign a joint statement condemning the attacks on the Pentagon uh, and these other targets, but specifically the Pentagon, because uh, they felt that it was a legitimate military target and should not be treated as an act of terrorism. Frank, let me interject just a second, just to, to emphasize, the building has just been attacked. You're talking like minutes, an hour, two hours. You're not talking about yeah. like three weeks later they're talking about this. You're talking about in real time they're discussing this. Yes, indeed. Well, the reason they were in my conference room was they were supposed to be at the White House having meetings with senior um, officials of the Bush administration and, and actually the president himself later in the day. Um, when those attacks took place, of course, the White House complex was closed down. Uh, there was great fear that it was going to be attacked itself. And uh, they moved with Grover's help. He had been responsible for setting up this meeting for them back to this conference room. And there they had this conversation. Yes, you know, it's all about uh, what had just happened and its implications. And I think, Sandy, why this is so um, important and, and uh, so noteworthy to me particularly uh, was I believe in that conference room that an initiative was set in train that has shaped American policy in this regard ever since. The sense that I think as part of a sort of damage limitation operation on the part of people who, it turns out, were mostly associated with an Islamist organization known as the Muslim Brotherhood, that they wanted to try to sort of jujitsu this uh, seeming terrible setback for them and their team into advantage. And I think with Grover Norquist's help, interestingly, they did. Uh, they, I believe, persuaded the president of the United States that he needed to reach out to Muslims like them so as to make it clear that his war on terror, which he pronounced shortly after the 9-11 attacks, uh, would not be anti-Muslim in character, and that he ought to say some things that uh, would really be favorably received by Muslim audiences in America, like, uh, oh, uh, Islam is a religion of peace. And jihad is about personal struggle, not violence. And um, the people who hijack those planes uh, are trying to hijack Islam. Well, we know for a fact that in the days following uh, 9-11, I think about the time of that uh, memorial service that you talked about, the president spent some time with those Muslim Brotherhood leaders. And he wound up saying some things very like those. And I think from that day to this, Sandy, our government has been blinded to the true nature of what I consider to be best described as the Sharia supremacist 
threat we face. And we have um, unfortunately been continuing to take advice from the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, a number of its operatives have been in government under various administrations. And this is a bipartisan criticism, by the way. It's not just uh, George W. Bush. Obama did it even more so. Uh, to some extent, Trump did. I think somewhat reluctantly, but did nonetheless. And and certainly the present administration has got a number of brotherhood-type people in it and sympathizers with them. And the point is that I think if you're not clear-eyed about Sharia, and we're all going to be getting more and more of a course on it, uh, thanks to the humiliating strategic defeat we've just suffered at the hands of a group of these supremacists, namely the Taliban, uh, thanks to Joe Biden, we are going to find ourselves confronting more and more and more the determination of people who do adhere, not all Muslims do, but some, including the authorities of the faith, insist it is the true faith, Sharia, this oppressive doctrine, this code uh, that you know is horrible to women and you know, apostates and so on, but basically everybody who is not Muslim who has to submit to it, and that's the agenda we're confronting, and we've not been clear-eyed about it in part, I believe, because of this influence operation that started on 9-11 and has continued to this day. Yeah, Frank, let me just point out uh, the uh, just the residual effect of that. I believe you're right, absolutely. We both had a—you were the, the tutor for me, uh, I had no idea. I don't think most Americans knew much about Islam before 9-11. Uh, but uh, I do know that our FBI and our uh, Pentagon, our law enforcement, uh, were pretty clear-eyed about Islam at the time. They had great training. Uh, that training was scrubbed. Uh, we know that people had a natural response to that attack. They became uh, very upset and were concerned about uh, people who were dressed in Muslim uh, garb amongst us, and that was tapped down like that was created. Then we created is- Islamophobia. You can't act that way. Then we had uh, the schools uh, now must be trained kids. Oh, no, 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 you must not. This, is, uh, this isn't about Islam. Islam's peaceful. And now we even have now, you know, schools still insisting on introducing Islam to public school students, even though they can't talk about Christianity. So you're right, Frank. Oh, they and then of course the Pentagon. We could talk about the replacement of ch- Christian chaplains with with Islamist uh, chaplains. It, it absolutely has radicalized, uh, radically undermined our understanding and caused us to be very confused. In fact, I think would you say just like in the prosecution of the war, Operation, you know, Iraqi Freedom and all that. How do you think it affected uh, how they fought that war? I think both the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq have been greatly impacted by the lack of clarity about the nature of the enemy we were confronting and what could be done about it. I mean, if if you are operating under the premise that the people fighting you are doing so for reasons other than their core uh, religious beliefs and doctrine, um, you're going to miss their uh, motivation. And you're going to be much more, I think, uh, unlikely to respond appropriately to it. Uh, Just to give you one example, we, we wound up having a guy by the name of Noah Feldman, professor at uh, Harvard Law School, 
who works with uh, Sharia uh, compliant banking uh, operations, among other things, writing uh, the draft constitution for Afghanistan and Iraq and insisting that they had to be explicitly Sharia-compliant documents and imposing Sharia on the people of those two countries explicitly. Now, one could argue about whether they wanted that or whether they didn't want that or whether they would have come up with that in their own right or not. But for the United States government to be essentially, in the person of Noah Feldman, dictating that that's how it had to be, uh, it was a terrible mistake, and I think yeah. contributed again to uh, confusion at best and at worst ineffectuality and having tactics and strategies for fighting these conflicts. Yes, there's so much to say about it. I think one example I'd like to give, because it'll help people understand how foolish we became. We have the, the case of uh, the Fort Hood shooter, Nidal Hassan, who was a doctor at Fort mm-hmm. Hood. He gets up on a table, puts on his uh, Muslim go- uh, garb, Shouts Alawa Akbar. He kills 14 soldiers and wounded 43 more. He's still in prison and, as a matter of fact, has just written a congratulations on your victory. He's talking about the Taliban. On your victory over those who uh, hate for the laws of Almighty God to be supreme in the land. I pray to Allah that he helps you implement Sharia law full, correctly, and fairly. And by the way, he was charged. We were told, Frank, that this was workplace violence. It had nothing to do with Islam. It was workplace violence. We we only have really literally two minutes left. So, Frank, your perspective, uh, it's an impossible ask, but this is 20 years. Tomorrow it will be 20 years. Uh, have we learned anything? Do you see any hope that we can overcome the horrors that have been happening in Afghanistan under the leadership of President uh, Joe Biden? I think it's going to come down to this, Sandy. Um, as the Taliban set about doing exactly what Nidal Hassan has called them to do, and which they you know, would do, um, whether he did or not, of course, we're going to be obliged to confront fully what Sharia entails and what, according to its doctrine of jihad, um, its adherents will try to do to the rest of us. That gives me some hope that we will finally get this right and we will finally be able to wage a war for our survival, for for Christendom's survival, for Western civilization's survival against an enemy determined to destroy it all. That's all right. Well, Frank, you did the impossible, and let's discuss a very complex issue in 17 minutes. So thank you. Thank you for being my friend, and thank you for giving me such insight so that through these years I've been able to cover this, I think, with clear eyes. Uh, and so, so much so that Southern Poverty Law Center, you know, listed me along with some other wonderful women as a, sort of enemies of Islam. There's been danger involved in this, uh, but we, we're going forward. We have to be very clear-eyed. Center for Security Policy and Frank's national show on this uh, station is a great source of good information. I hope that you will listen. Sandy Rios in the morning, AFR Talk. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Facebook or email Sandy at Sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. For the casualties of today's attack, we also remember those thousands of people who are rescue workers. We ask now that we all bow our heads in a moment of silence and remembrance. 
Thank you. Surprisingly, that's not exactly, you know, a group of professional singers. That was members of the House and senators who went to the Capitol steps on 9-11 uh, to just uh, pay tribute and so show solidarity. And trust me, there was as much division in the country then as there is now over other issues, uh, maybe nearly as much. And so that was the voice of uh, the Speaker of the House at the time, Dennis Hastert, convening them, and then they sang God Bless America. Well, I thought it would be interesting for us to go to a good friend of mine who was uh, I'm assuming, at the Capitol on that day, certainly close by, because she was, the at that time, the director of coalitions for the Senate Republican Conference. And uh, she also, in that capacity, handled the Judicial Confirmation Coalition, developed the Religious Liberty Coalition, and the International and, co- uh, and the Coalition to Support the War Against Terror. Uh, she's also one of the founders of the Independent Women's Forum. She's married to um, someone who's been on the show many times, Michael Ledeen, who's a noted historian and writer. And uh, she, her daughter recently was on with us, Simone Ledeen, who was a former um, uh, Secretary of Defense, Under Secretary of Defense. Uh, she has two sons who are Marine officers. So Barbara has a lot of passion about this issue and a lot of knowledge. And I've asked her to join us this morning. Uh, good morning, Barbara, first of all. Good morning, Sandy. Thank you for and having I would just, me. I think the, the best thing is to ask you, first of all, were, were you in the Capitol on that day? Where were you when this happened? Well, I, I was in our office at the Senate Republican Conference, which was on the fourth floor of the Hart Building. Um, it was, uh, I had driven into the office at the time that the second, that the first plane hit the World Trade Center. And when I got to the office, uh, we were watching the television, and the second plane hit. And we all looked at each other and said, uh-oh, this is war. And shortly thereafter, the announcement went out that everybody had to leave the Hart Building uh, immediately. And I, I'm not someone who takes that kind of direction to run and leave our business to the terrorists lightly. And so I said to my boss, who was Mark Rogers, who was Rick Santorum, was our was our boss, Senator Santorum, and Mark was our chief of staff. And I said to him, I'm not leaving. You can go, but I'm, I'm not leaving. And uh, because we're leadership, we were in the, we were, in, our boss was a third ranking senator. And I just thought it was, we would have to work. We would obviously have to get the message out, whatever message we were going to put out. And, it, and we had to stay and do our job. So I said, you you go, I'm going to stay. And he said, no, I'm staying with you. So the two of us stayed. And about, I would say, 10 minutes later, the marshals came by again. And basically, the Capitol Hill police, and they said, you're going. And they, like, forcibly picked us up and uh, made us run down the stairs and out the door. And 
of course, unbeknownst to us at the time, there was a plane that they thought was headed for the Capitol. So we left, and I walked over to a restaurant called The Monocle on 2nd Street, which is right right behind the Hart Senate office building. And um, the guys who, who run the restaurant, are, they're friends of ours because we've been there for lunch a thousand times. And uh, I asked if I could use the phone because I had a, 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 my youngest child was still at uh, in in school, and uh, I wanted to let him know that I was okay. So I called the school and I asked them to get a message to my son that I was okay and I was headed home. And I did, and I drove I drove north, and there was an incredible stream of traffic uh, fleeing the city, which made me feel even worse that we were running. Uh, away uh, rather than toward the scene, uh, whatever scene there was. Anyway, I got home and my phone rang and it was Mary Ellen Bork, Judge Bork's <laughs> wife, who called me to say that our friend Barbara Olson was on the plane that crashed into the Pentagon. <laughs> I then called a series of mutual, mutual friends. Barbara was among my very, very closest friends. All my family knew her, all my kids, all three of my kids and my husband, of course. And and uh, and then we drove over to Barbara's house. Um, in the meantime, people had called me saying that the White House was under attack and people were running from the White House. And, and basically, it was uh, a sense of great foreboding and a sense that, well, now we were going to have to pull together if we were going to save ourselves. That night at Barbara's house, um, Ken Starr came and a, n- a number of other famous lawyers who were friends of Ted and Barbara. Ted at the time, Barbara's husband, was Solicitor General of the United States. And he told us that Barbara had reached out three or four times from the airplane as it was flying from Dulles into the Pentagon, which is not very much time. She'd called three or four times, collect. Uh, before the operator at DOJ accepted her call and put her through to Ted. They, she told Ted that there were terrorists aboard, that they had slit the pilot's throat, which is Deborah Burlingame's brother, uh, slit his throat uh, with a razor, uh, cardboard cutter razor. And uh, they had a few last words, which will always be between Ted and Barbara. And... That night, when Ted went to bed, there was a note on his pillow that she left because it was his birthday. So, um, about a week later, one of my sons came to me and said, um, I've signed up for the Marine Corps. And I said, what are you, <laughs> your mind? You're, you're in college. He was at Rice University. Uh, we're Jews, and I said I'd never heard of a Jew who joined the Infantry Marine Corps. You could, do, you know, be a, an analyst, be a meteorologist, you know, all the things that I thought that Jewish boys could do. And he said, uh, no, I'm signing up for the Marine Corps. I've already done that. And then he said, we don't go on trains anymore. We have to shoot them first. I need to know how to do that. That's a direct quote burned in my brain forever. We don't go on trains anymore. 
How old was he? How old was he, Barbara? He was he was twenty. And so he went into the Marine Corps. He became an officer in the Marine Corps. He was a logistics officer attached to an infantry unit. His first tour was in Haditha for eight months, and his second tour was in Fallujah for eight months. My other son also joined the Marine Corps and became a Marine officer, also logistics, also a captain, and he did convoys in Helmand Province for nine months. And as you know about Simone, uh, my daughter, she um, she was getting her MBA and she knew the European banking systems. And so she became a specialist in setting up the entire terror finance operation that the United States did not have prior to 9-11. And she had several tours in Iraq, several tours in Afghanistan, I think she spent more time in combat zones than my two Marines. But um, now that's what happened that day and subsequently to that day in, in, in part of my life. The other part of my life was that I set up, because I was director of coalitions, I had access to all of the Republican offices in the Senate. And I started a monthly visit to Walter Reed and to Bethesda Naval, they were two hospitals at the time, where senators and their staff could go and meet with the wounded soldiers, meet with their parents, take any complaints or suggestions or provide any help that the families needed. In that time, I also was a volunteer with the Red Cross and was assigned to go to uh, Bethesda Naval, the ICU unit, every Wednesday to help the families. Today, as I'm standing here about a mile and a half away from Bethesda Naval, and I think about those families that I met during those years who believed that they were, that, that their government was not betraying their sons and daughters, that the, the wounded and the maimed that we saw there were not in vain. And I can tell you that today I have great, great doubt about how this has been handled over the past 20 years. It makes me so sad to say that. But these families, as Deborah said in her statement, these families deserve more than what they've gotten. And the respect, I would say that the social contract between the military and the civilian world is severely frayed. And of all the things that Biden has done or not done, this is among the very, very worst. Oh, I don't disagree with you at all, Barb. I don't dis. I just read this morning uh, that the Biden administration is asking uh, Trump supporters, or maybe Trump appointees, who've been appointed to boards at the uh, military uh, academies, uh, to resign. Uh, it, um, yep. Yeah. So, they're purging. They're purging anyone who has another viewpoint. And uh, we're going to see the results of that soon. I want to go back just for a second because this is history. You and I are talking about history. It was part of your DNA and mine too in a different way, uh, what happened on 9-11. It's 20 years ago. Barbara Olson, interestingly enough, Barbara was, uh, I don't even know what her day job was, but she was a commentator, beautiful, blonde woman, brilliant and hilarious. I used to interview her all the time in Chicago before I came to D.C. And I felt like we had a 
friendship, not like yours, Barb, but a friendship. Uh, you make friends with people that you interview a lot. And so she is the one who went down that Barb was just describing, the the wife of the Solicitor General of the United States. And um, she's the one, that, the one that we know that went down in that plane in, in the Pentagon. Uh, Barb, uh, I talked with uh, Frank B- Gaffney, our mutual friend, before you joined me, and we discussed how how do we get off base so far? And of course, how do we how do we start you know uh, like emphasizing Islamophobia and muting the natural response and twisting what Islam is and what it isn't, uh, so that we cr- we confused uh, people, regular people. I think on purpose. I think the Muslim Brotherhood was deeply involved in the twisting of that. How do we untangle this misunderstanding about what's happening uh, with Islam and the United States and the free world? Look, I, you know, this is where we may disagree a little bit, um, but I know, uh, because I've worked with plenty of patriotic Muslims who fought with us in this war, not all Muslims are terrorists, not all Jews are shysters, not all Christians are bigoted. I mean, it's very hard to, and I think it's, it's not fair to paint all groups of people by the same paintbrush. Um, we, we're a nation of individuals. We don't like to think of people as belonging to groups. So I just would say that some of our translators, whom I know, are very, very brave and very, very loyal to the United States. Yes. Well, you don't, no disagreement with case you thought. I did not agree with that. I do agree with that, you know, and I think that's probably a good way to end our discussion, Barbara. No, because people, I think it was Martin Luther King who said we don't judge people by some classification. We judge them by their character. And that's what you're talking about. And yes, I'm right there with all of that. Barbara Ledeen, listen, it's such a privilege to have that time with you this morning. Because uh, you and I, uh, we need to tell our children and our grandchildren what happened on 9-11. And certainly with what's happening in Afghanistan, they need context because things are going to be getting much more messy. Uh, Barbara Ledeen, thank you so much for your love of this country and your inspiration to me personally always. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk.